I started to realize that God's grace comes to us in many forms. You know, there's lots of Christians are ashamed about taking antidepressants. I needed antidepressants for long periods in my illness. Why are we so, you know, difficult about this? The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, a very good afternoon to you. You are listening to Premier Christian Radio. I am Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication, and it sponsors this show, makes it all possible. This is the show where we look at a different Christian's life every week. We're bringing you conversations, including in this lockdown period, with people from all different walks of life about how their faith has changed the way they live. And we've got an amazing testimony for you today. His name is Eric Gaudian, and he has suffered with a chronic, uh, very painful condition for many, many years. In fact, it's the most painful condition known to humanity. And he's going to be talking really honestly with me today about how that condition has affected his faith, even as a church leader, even as someone who believes in healing, how he has dealt with an illness that doesn't seem to respond to prayer at many points in his life. You can also read this testimony, this story, in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. We've got a fantastic special offer for you right now. You can subscribe to the magazine for only £4.95 a month. That will give you not only a quality print publication through your door every month, you also get full online access as well so you'll better hear lots more testimonies and stories just like this one so why not take advantage of that now go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe and support quality christian journalism premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe And before we get into the conversation today, just a quick note to say this was recorded some weeks ago and also that we had some small technical problems to begin with with the line, but they're soon sorted out. So you have to forgive us if there are a little bit of hiccups here and there, but I do trust you're going to enjoy this story and be moved by it as well. Here is Eric Gaudian in conversation with me, Sam Hales. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. We are recording the show today from my spare room because, of course, the country is in lockdown, but we're still able to bring you the show. This is the show where we delve into a Christian's life, faith and testimony. And uh, I'm really delighted to say that my guest today is Eric. Um, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm in my home in Guernsey. Uh, We're all locked down as well down here. Um, but it's good to be with you today. Fantastic stuff. Now, Eric, we're talking to you today because um, you've got a new book out, haven't you, with Instant Apostles. So tell me a little bit about the book, because it's very personal to you, isn't it? It's your personal story. It is, Sam. Yeah, I uh, wrote this book. It's really the third in a trilogy about storms, because my life has been a bit stormy, and I've just come out of 22 chronic pain um, and I've spent long periods in intensive care units. I hear so much about people going into ICU. Even the Prime Minister had a spell recently. Well, I have spent weeks at a time in ICU um, and I've been in on several occasions and had really bad near-death encounters, etc. And um, and over those 22 years, I've had more than a ho- 100 hospital admissions. Um, I've been on huge doses of morphine to try and control the appalling pain. And, um, and all this time, um, because of my background as, as a Christian and as a Christian leader in a tradition that believes very much in, in healing and a God who heals and loves us and cares and intervenes in our lives, 
um, I, I had to struggle with the mystery of all of why all this was happening to me. So the book is kind of a, a reflection over uh, how tough it can be sometimes in life and how God uses these circumstances to change us. But I, I can see, you know, small ways in which God was at work, despite the overriding difficulties that I faced. Well, here on the show, we always like to go back to the beginning and hear about a person's life growing up. So tell me something of what early life was like for you, a bit about your parents, where you were, and I guess what was around at the time in terms of beliefs, uh, Christian or otherwise, that really formed you as you were growing up. Yeah, I was born and brought up in Guernsey in the Channel Islands. It was really when I was in the, in the um, sixth form at uh, a college on the island that I encountered Christians and I had experiences that led me to a moment when I opened my life to Jesus and, and invited him in. And my mum went to the principal of the college and complained that something had happened to me, that I'd got religion. And although it was a Church of England college, he said to her, my dear lady, I can assure you that wherever he got religion, he did not get it here. Um, but my life was transformed. And, uh, and after in Guernsey and then overseas as a missionary um, with, with um, Fever Radio in Seychelles, <laughs> in the Middle East, a Christian radio producer. And then back to the UK in Cardiff, where I was the senior pastor of a large church in Cardiff City Centre. Uh, that's where I became ill. And, right. and the story, you know, is, is a bit downhill from there. Sure. So tell me a bit about uh, what happens. Uh, I guess what were the first signs for you that something might be wrong? I just became aware of, of abdominal pain, nausea, weakness, you know, the typical symptoms that something was wrong internally. I ignored it as one tends to, um, sometimes to, you know, to my own detriment, really. And, and then I sought medical help and things got worse. And I finally collapsed and found myself in hospital the first of many, many times. And um, yeah, I had a series of, of interventions that took my gallbladder out and did various things to try and help me, but none of it really worked. And after a period of some months, it became clear that I'd had several times returning to the team, returning to the pulpit, and it became clear that I couldn't continue. And the doctor suggested I go back to Guernsey to my home and have, have a period of rest. They thought perhaps six months of rest might just settle this thing down. It actually got much, much worse when I did return to the island. And it was there that I spent my first long, long stint in intensive care and very nearly died. How long were you in intensive care for? That time, I was, uh, I was in the ICU for three weeks and then many weeks afterwards in the hospital in different um, wards. And I've returned over the years um, in crisis both to hospitals in Guernsey and then in London, to the University College London Hospital, Southampton General, um, and finally, uh, two years ago, to Newcastle, where I finally had the surgery, space-age surgery, that has changed my life so dramatically and wow. delivered me from 22 wow. years of the most appalling pain. So at what point did you get a diagnosis? At what point was it sort of discovered exactly what was wrong and what was your understanding at that time? It took several months and it really only when I was in Guernsey in the ICU that they got to the bottom of this matter. And I, I clearly had um, an illness called pancreatitis, a severe inflammation of the pancreas. The pancreas sitting north of the abdomen um, normally does two things. It produces enzymes that dissolve meat and fat, and then it uh, produces insulin that controls blood sugar and stops us being diabetic. And uh, in my case, the enzymes that dissolve meat were being blocked in there 
and they were dissolving the pancreas and they were eating the nerves and the arteries nearby. So I had acute hemorrhaging pancreatitis. And then since then, I've had lots of attacks, more than 80 attacks of acute pancreatitis. And it leads on to other conditions and pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis has been at the heart of my problems. It's, um, it's not common, but it, there's quite a lot of it in the UK. It's often caused by alcohol misuse or drug misuse, <laughs> which wasn't the case with me. I hope um, it wasn't your case if you're a church pastor at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, there, there are some um, causes that are called idiopathic. Well, okay. I, they said that was me, and I thought, oh, dear, it sounds like only idiots get this. <laughs> um, but actually, it means that, no, they don't know what causes it, really. And sure. it, but it's, it's very painful. It's one of the most painful conditions known to mankind. And um, it, because of that, it requires intensive care. It's often fatal. And in many cases, people died from, at the time, a good friend of mine, a chap called Bob Gordon, who was a Bible teacher in the UK, he passed away with the same condition. And it was all very worrying and, and you know, really didn't seem I, I would survive. Yeah. Given, so, uh, given that it is so painful, one of the, as you say, one of the most painful conditions in existence, did, did that bring the kind of problem of evil, the problem of suffering home to you to a greater level? Because I suppose all of us, Christians or not, ask those sorts of questions of, of how could a good, loving God allow suffering? But it's one thing to ask that. It's another thing to have one of the most painful conditions in existence and think, God, why would you even let such a horrible condition exist? Uh, you know, why would you not take it away from me? I guess especially as a Christian who believes that God heals today. So, so tell me a bit about where those questions came in for you and, and how you wrestled with them. They're very real questions and they, they occupy my mind even today with the viruses that are going around and the lockdown and all the rest of it. I kind of feel that this is one we're not going to solve fully, um, this side of eternity. But I suppose my book has tried to show some of my reflecting on this and, and share some of the, the thinking that has developed in my mind about this. It becomes particularly difficult when you have as in my case, a Pentecostal charismatic sort of theology. And you, you see that God is a redeeming God and he intervenes in response to prayer and he does heal. And then you think, well, why? Why, why would he allow this? And why, why wouldn't he intervene? 22 years on opiates. Well, I was about 20 years on opiates. I had a couple of years off when they inserted a computer into my spine, which uh, blocked the pain getting to the brain. But even that was overwhelmed after a while. But I used to take up to a thousand milligrams of morphine equivalent per day. And I was still in agony. It is a most debilitating, painful condition. And so sometimes my thinking about suffering was simply blown off the screen by the pain. Right. And I had to sort of realize that sometimes when you're going through stuff, it's best just to rest and not ask too deep questions um, I'm, I'm writing at the moment about the book of Job for Scripture Union. I, I write for their Encounter with God series. And they said to me, you know a thing or two about suffering. Why don't you write about Job? Well, the book of Job really helped me while I was going through my suffering. So I'm happy to do that. I love the book. And right at the beginning of Job, in the first two chapters, we get an insight into a kind of unseen world, a sort of spiritual world that was going on without Job being aware of it, where God was doing stuff in and through Job's life that he just wasn't aware of. And I suppose I'm still unaware of all that God has done 
in me and through me in this. Um, but but I, I don't doubt that he was at work, is at work, and that he has purposes in all these situations. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for asking, but it's a, it's a struggle still. Yeah, of course. Uh, tell me about, um, about how... I guess your church ministry has been affected by this. You mentioned you were leading a church, uh, quite a big well-known church actually in Wales, wasn't it? So t- tell me a bit about ministry there. And obviously this illness would have um, hampered, I suppose, that the ministry you felt called to there. In the period that I was leading the church, and it was a great privilege to serve there. Um, I, we passed through a period of real blessing and there, there was there was a sense that God's Holy Spirit was really moving in the city and in the church and across the world at that time, so that we saw people being healed. And we had a healing ministry, and I was part of that. And then become ill and chronically ill, you know, unyielding to prayer. I mean, I sought prayer. I I had so much oil poured on my head. I I wonder that my hair ever dries, (laughs) you know. um, Whenever we heard that there was blessing anywhere, if I was up to it, we'd travel there to be prayed for. I was prayed for by some of the biggest names in Christendom. Uh, and, And the church fasted and prayed. And people would come and say, they'd say to Diane, how's Eric doing? Uh, that's my wife, by the way, Diane. Uh, they'd say, how's Eric? Oh, he's still poorly. Oh, I can't be. We're praying for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give up. Um, so I guess it, you must have heard, I guess you must have heard in, in your time, some of, the, some of the worst Christian responses to suffering as well as some of the better ones, including yes. that, really, of a kind of just... Um, or, I, I imagine that puts an almost almost strange and very unhealthy sense of pressure on you almost to get better because so many people were praying therefore did you ever feel pressure to sort of give a more optimistic report that really piles on the pressure as and some of the things that well-meaning people say really piles on the pain um have you thought about praying about it pastor um you know where where's your faith that's another thing that some charismatic Pentecostals will ask. Um, oh, you've been in Africa. You must have been cursed. Wow. Uh, have, you got, have you got anything in your life that, you know, you're ashamed of or need to get rid of? I mean, this sort of stuff. And the, and the very worst was the demonic stuff. You know, the suggestion that I, as it hasn't responded to prayer, well, there's only one area left, mate. I'm sorry, but, you know, you must be demonized. And, and if that can be said to someone who's leading a large sort of thriving charismatic church, what's said sometimes to people on the periphery who are disabled, long-term ill, chronically unwell, struggling with life problems of all kinds in marriage, in finance, in debt, in personal behavior, you know, we've got to be so careful how we speak around and to people. And I see this with Job's comforters, Bildad and Eliphaz. They, they really, and Zophar, they were so hard on him. And he even said to them, if I was in, if you were in my position and I was in yours, I would speak to you with comfort, encouragement and hope. And, and that's what we need to do. They didn't do it. And some did and some didn't in my experience. Sure. And now I try and I try and remember that. Yeah. So tell me about um, what happened next. This was it was City Temple Church, wasn't it? In, uh... it, it was the City Temple Cardiff. It's now City Church Cardiff and absolutely right. thriving. Thank God. Yeah. Um, 
so I came back to Guernsey and I had two years in which I couldn't work at all. I mean, the very fact that I survived was an answer to prayer and a blessing. And then um, after that, I was called to the pastorate of a Baptist church on Guernsey called Shiloh Church, a lovely fellowship, and with a good, strong, um, quite large leadership team and eldership. So I could give what I could give, if you know what I mean. I wasn't strong. Mm. I mean, the first time I went there, I, I preached there and I sat down and I remained sitting down preaching all the time for nine years that I was there, um, just giving what I could give. And then yeah. others would serve alongside me and that that really helped but then I became so so often I was missing meetings I was missing weddings and even funerals uh, and I was in hospital again and again and again getting shipped back and forth to London by air ambulance you know just so many times in hospital Um, and then so I stood down again from that and I had about five years then when I couldn't work at all and then I, they put that computer in my spine. So I had a bit of freedom from the actual pain. Um, and for a couple of years, I served leading an Elam church in Guernsey's town centre. Um, but even then, I, I just, you know, it overwhelmed the computer and I, I simply was in trouble again. So I retired early. And I am retired now, though I help out at my local Elam church. Mm. And how did, I mean, how has all of this affected relationships? You mentioned your wife what's been the the result of of all this pain and suffering on on your marriage and on your family it is incredibly hard for those who love and care for us when we pass through trials like this when storms come that just don't seem to yield to prayer and diane shared with it with me absolutely marvelously i mean all through my periods in hospital she's been coming in and spending time with me Uh, There was only one period in ICU when she couldn't come in for two or three days because I talk about this in the book. I I had terrible mental problems as well as physical and I became uh, deeply distressed and and I was coming out of a coma and I started screaming and and shouting and I, I, I yelled for three days and she couldn't face that. And so for those three days, she stayed away. But otherwise, she's been at my side the whole time. I mean, coming to London with me on the air ambulance and coming, you know, so many times. I mean, we must have gone to 100, 100 times to London, uh, mm-hmm. to the UCLH. And she was always at my side. We have one son, Matthew, who's grown up now and got his own children. And, and he, he suffered too as a teenager being told by the nurses that his dad wouldn't survive and this sort of thing. You know, it, it really was tough. This month, Premier Christianity magazine asks, what really matters to you? Read about one of the biggest issues of today as we address Black Lives Matter head on. Understand the church's response to racism, how we get it wrong, where we get it right, and why there's no excuse for apathy. Immerse yourself in powerful Black Lives Matter features, plus stories of lockdown, interviews, and current affairs. Available in print and online at premierchristianity.com. You mentioned in in another interview as well, some of that mental struggle and, and even the temptation to end it all presumably because the pain was just so intense. Uh, tell me more about that time, what led to that. And, um, and I guess what brought you through that as well, because of course, you know, you didn't give in to that, that temptation. So, you know, where was God in, in all of that, do you think? The mental side of long-term suffering is, is 
for me the most difficult because I'm a kind of altogether guy I care for other people I've you know spent my life in service of others and service of God and for me to lose it mentally in intensive care I had a thing called ICU psychosis when you're in there a long time uh, and with a, com a perfect storm really of um, toxins from the condition and um, the medical form of heroin um, which was given to me for pain control and lack of oxygen to the brain. I just became so paranoid. That was the worst thing and confused. Um, and that, that was a very disturbing experience with awful hallucinations and living in another world. And again, I try and explain a little bit about that in the book, because I think Christians going through mental crisis often feel completely estranged from what they know is, you know, their core faith and, and the support of the church because people don't understand it. And I didn't understand it and I didn't like it, but I experienced it. And I don't joke now about paranoia. I don't say about someone, oh, they're paranoid about this right. or the other, because it's a dreadful experience. And then afterwards, of course, I was left with post-traumatic stress. And PTSD has been, over the last couple of decades, a, a significant part of this condition. Whenever I go to the dentist and they're working over me, I'm back in ICU. Um, I can cope with that in the daytime by preparing my heart and uh, trying to keep at peace. But, um, I mean, I've told my dentist that and he's aware of that. Right. Uh, also, at night, I sometimes wake up and Diane has to, to help me because I'm back there and, you know, I'm screaming and I'm back in the ICU. So... Yeah, I, I think that the mental side of this is is the most difficult. And for me, there came a point where uh, morphine is very depressive and long periods on morphine had that impact on me. And I just felt, you know, I'm going to heaven. Why wouldn't I just get there more quickly? Why wouldn't I just go, you know? And yeah, I look back on that. I'm not, I'm not proud of that. I, I don't find it easy to talk about. But I thank God that he helped me to see that the pain I would cause Diane and Matthew and the church and my testimony um, would be so great that it wasn't a helpful thing in any way. And it wasn't a right thing for me to be considering. And my times are in his hands. And I, I had to be willing each day to say, Lord, I leave that with you. When you take me, that'll be my time. But I do understand those who come to the absolute end of their tether. And I would say to them, if you're, I would say to you today, if you're listening to me, seek help and seek it early, talk to someone, share how you're feeling um, because you know, you matter and people care and the damage that self-harm or, or even wanting to end your life would cause to others it is immense. Mm. And you can't turn back from that. So seek help early. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, hearing, hearing your story and what, you, what you've gone through, a question I often like to ask people is, how has your faith changed over time? And I, and I suppose in your case, it'd be really interesting to hear, how has your faith, your theology changed really as a result of your illness? Because one presumes you can't go through something like this and, and not change how you think about God and the Bible and the big questions of life. So... So how has that changed, do you think? I think it has changed. I think that my faith has grown and, and, and changed because of what I've been through. I think that the fires that we go through and the storms that we encounter, they do deepen our faith and they change our faith. Um, and, you know, sometimes we, we can judge people unfairly and say, you know, they're in this camp of faith or in that camp of unbelief. But actually there is a growing faith and a deepening faith which only, which only comes through struggle. 
you know, um, when I was a young guy, I did some um, gliding, you know, with the cadets. So we would get into a glider and we, we'd be towed a mile long cable about 60 miles an hour, would tow us up into the air, thousand feet in the air, then we'd pull a toggle and we're on our own. And um, we'd go up, 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 and then pull the toggle, bang, and it's quiet. We're on our own, we're flying. And I think there are times in life when God is towing us and, and great, we're growing and we're, oh, this is marvellous. And then there comes a point where he pulls the toggle and we're flying a bit and it feels like we're on our own. Um, but there always was a voice in the back cockpit, you know, um, which, which was there to advise and guide till I did go solo. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I, I think that, that we, we need to recognise that those times when we are struggling and when we're in a, adversity and trial, Something is growing and changing inside mm. us and God is having his way and we're being made more like, more like Jesus in the midst of the trial. So yes, and then my theology of course has changed because there I was a you know, leading Pentecostal charismatic and, and I now see that we need to have a balance between a theology of healing and a theology of suffering because the Bible is full of it. And um, you might say, oh, yes, but Job's in the Old Testament. I don't follow Job. I follow Jesus. Yeah, but hang on. Jesus respected Job and spoke of him uh, and loved the book of Job because he loved the whole Old Testament. And so we need to take on board, you know, and the suffering of Paul. It's immense. We read about it in Second Corinthians. So we, we can't just throw all that out and say, no, no, no. It's all about persecution. It's not about other trials. Storms of all kinds are times when we can grow in our faith and grow in our theology and just get to know God better. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I think you called it a, a space age operation or procedure you went through. Um, so tell me more about, about that. And was this the sort of light at the end of the tunnel, the, the thing you've been hoping for and waiting for that would suddenly give you some relief from the pain? What a mercy. We were, trans were transferred or um, sent, referred from U University College London Hospital to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where Professor Stephen White was carrying out these um, transplant operations where he would remove the pancreas and spleen and all those bits and, um, and they would transplant the islets of Langerhan, that's the little bit in the pancreas that creates insulin, transplant those into the liver so that they would continue to produce insulin. And in my case, um, that's gone really well. And so I'm, I'm not diabetic and, uh, and I'm able to eat normally with the help of artificial enzymes. And I had no pain. Uh, and he didn't think it would be a success. He'd only done four of them at Newcastle before I got there. The only one that was, and they were done as trials, you know, it wasn't offered under the NHS. The only one that had um, been done in his 60s had died as a result of a complication. So he said, well, you'll be my second. And, and so you've got to really think about it. But we were yeah. desperate, yeah. really desperate. So I was 16 and a half hours in theatre. It was all filmed by BBC Two. And then afterwards, I was in ICU for quite a while and on the wards. And I did go right down, but I've come up again the other side. And I am completely free. I, I am no longer you know, on opiates. After 20 years on opiates, I came off them. Uh, I was more or less off when I came out of hospital, but I was off them in three months. And I've never looked back. I have wow. no craving for them, no desire for them, no pain. So I really thank God my life That's has been transformed. That's incredible. And when did this operation take place? In June of 2017. Right. And um, it is now being rolled out across the NHS. 
uh, in the UK, but it was at a trial stage uh, at that point. Wow. So I imagine the change to just your general quality of life and what you're able to do since that time has been absolutely phenomenal. What are the sorts of things you've been enjoying now that you couldn't do before? Well, traveling, um, being able to go and see friends and speak in churches around the UK and overseas um, and, and just being able to, I mean, we were isolated long before self-isolation came in. Yes. <laughs> we were isolated because I couldn't eat. Um, I, I was, you know, thin and gaunt and unwell. I was in such pain. We couldn't socialize, couldn't go to things constantly. Diane would have to go to things alone and tell me when she got back, what had happened. I couldn't get to church for ages. Um, so, you know, I understand how people find this self-isolation and social distancing really hard. But I have to say that those of us who have been chronically ill, we know a thing or two about this. Welcome to our world. Mm, yeah, I mean, I have to say that it's something I've, I've been noticing and learning through all of this kind of connected to that is um, obviously the huge growth in on- online church that's happened just in the past six weeks, really. Um, and of course, the number of, of disabled people sort of saying, well, actually, we've been doing this for quite some time. We've been pioneers in this area. We've been setting up online churches. And, and quite sadly, a lot of those people are saying, you know, because we were chronically ill, we couldn't get to church. We've been setting up online services. Quite sadly, they're saying a lot of church leaders didn't really want to know, didn't think it was important. Whereas now, of course, everyone's doing it. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on on that um but but it, it does seem like we're suddenly in a position now where both with that and what you just mentioned those who have been disabled or chronically ill um are sort of saying what you just said of welcome to our world this is something <laughs> yes. we we have some experience in they do and also I, I, you know and that's a helpful insight and one to be borne in mind when regathering happens you know we when none of us know quite how long it's going to be and what the new normal will look like when we do get back. I have a sense that probably social distancing might last longer than, than lockdown. Um, and also that older folk might have to be more careful about gatherings. So regathering will be difficult, but I do think it's important. And I do feel that those who are isolated at home and, and chronically unwell mustn't be forgotten when the regathering happens. And there must be ways of reaching out and perhaps live stream is one of them. Uh, but there, there's also an importance to touch, and I'm missing touch. You know, I thank God that I, I, I'm married and I'm, my wife and I are together and we can hug each other. But, you know, I feel for those who are on their own, and touch is a vital thing. When I was in ICU, I was hooked up to all kinds of machines and stuff. But every now and again, a nurse would have to come and take my pulse uh, physically. And uh, every sort of well, three times an hour, I think they would come and do that. And I, w- I was so helped by them holding my wrist for 30 seconds. I felt life flowing into me when they, male or female, would hold my wrist and take my pulse. And I realized then how important touch is. And we're all being denied that at this time. So we, we need to pray that that facility and that that ministry and that grace will return to us as a community in due course mm. many people are wondering uh, where is god in all of this in the in the enforced lockdown and coronavirus and all the things we're going through um, have you thought about that at all have you feel like you have any any insights feel like god said anything to you or you've read anything by others and think oh here's how i see god in this and not that that explains it all away or makes it easier but just i think people are asking that question of kind of what is all of this about I spoke on Palm Sunday about the verse that says that Jesus paused in his journey and he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over them because of what they were missing, but he wept over them because of the pain that was ahead of them. 
and I felt that I felt God showed me that Jesus weeps today over London and New York, um, you know, and Wuhan, and, and that he he feels deeply the losses. I'm afraid we're becoming a bit inured to the numbers. Um, we should take note of the fact that the numbers of those who have died from coronavirus in the last six weeks are as great as the numbers who died in the Blitz. In fact, there are more people that have died of coronavirus in the last six weeks in Britain than died in the whole of the Blitz in 1940. So, you know, we're facing a massive loss and grief, and I feel God's heart is with us in that grieving process, that he weeps over the losses and shares with us in, in, the, in the pain of all that's happening. At the same time, he knows what's happening. He knows this virus better than the scientists do. He understands having created the processes that have brought it about. Of course, we know it's a result of the fall. We know that the whole sort of misappropriation of the proteins and so on by the virus is all part of this um, subtext of evil that comes from the fall. But our God is a redeeming God. And, and he longs to work, even in crises like this, to redeem, to restore, to rebuild, and ultimately to bring us through. And we will be, as a community, changed by it. We will, in some ways, grow through it. Um, and you know, science and medicine will develop through it so that we will come through this and we will be victorious. But the process is a tough one. And I believe our God weeps with us in the midst of it. We spoke earlier about some of the unhelpful things that Christians have said to you and when you were in the midst of your suffering. I did want to ask, though, were there, were there more positive moments? What were some of the things that, that Christians said to you or Christians did for you when you were in the, the real depths of, of pain and suffering that you look back on and that you're grateful for? I am overwhelmed with gratitude for the people who prayed for me persistently, consistently over decades. And thank God that there are those who didn't give in, um, who didn't take the bad news and say, oh, well, he's had it, but who said, I'm just going to hang in there with him. Diane tells me that when I was in ICU in Guernsey, that first long time, um, and things were really tough, a, a small group of believers were not allowed into ICU, obviously, but they would gather in the corridor on the hospital floor below ICU and pray for me there. Um, the church in Cardiff was told on a particular day when I was very near death and um, and they fasted and prayed and I just thank God for that and we had a friend called Sandy she was a, a nurse a retired nurse at that stage she's now a hospital chaplain and she just stuck with us like glue through our whole trial and was and she would come on the plane when I was being transferred to London. She'd be in the ambulance going into into London, um, and she was just such a help to us. Even though she'd lost her own husband not many months before and and had passed through real pain herself, but I think that's what motivated her. She didn't want us to be alone, and she stuck with us. Mm. And and then the things that people said. There was a wonderful chaplain at the University College London Hospital, a Baptist lady chaplain called Barbara and she was only a little slight little lady she was given an MBE by the Queen for her chaplaincy services she's gone to heaven now but she was such a help and when I, I felt deep shame about being ill 
about who I was and the fact that I was on a pancreatic biliary ward, mainly with, with homeless people and drunks and addicts and alcoholics. I mean, there's a whole st story there that I tell in the book about life on those wards and, and needing so much morphine. I was so ashamed and I said to her, it's such a sorrow to me that I need this stuff. And, and she, she helped me greatly because she taught me that, you know, if I was diabetic, if I was, um, my eyes were poor, I'd need glasses, I'd need insulin. Why was I so resistant to morphine? And I, you know, I just had to say to her, I'm so sad that as a pastor, um, I need this, you know, that I, oh, it's a mystery, isn't it? And then she said to me, well, when you receive your food, Eric, the hospital food, do you give thanks for it? I said, yes, I bow my head and say, thank you, Lord. She said, well, I want you to do that tomorrow when they bring you your morphine injection. I want you to give thanks and yeah. say grace for your morphine and thank God for the relief that he, he gives you through it. Yeah. No, it was hard to do, I can tell you. <laughs> I, was, I was even more reluctant to give thanks for the morphine than I was to give thanks for that awful hospital food. But I did it. I did it as a discipline and I started to realize that God's grace comes to us in many forms. Yeah. You know, there's lots of Christians are ashamed about taking antidepressants. I needed antidepressants for long periods in my illness. Yeah. And why, why are we so, you know, difficult about this? Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I just, we, we give ourselves such a hard time about these things when we need to say, you know, God's not against hospitals and medicines and mm. doctors. He's against illness and suffering. Yeah. So we're on the same side, you know, and, and um, there we are. <laughs> that's yeah. my story. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing how much of your story, I just think, has most amazing um, kind of relevance for the moment we're in. I mean, talking there about prayer and ICU, it reminds me of, of this, this incredible well, more than one NHS Nightingale hospitals that are being built across the country. But it was, someone pointed out to me that the first one in the London Excel Centre, of course, London Excel is, has been the centre of this event called Festival of Life, where quite literally tens of thousands of Christians have gathered for all-night prayer meetings. Um, and, and I went along once, actually, and it's, it's organised by the Redeemed Christian Church of God. And so I was basically the only white person in the room. And it was just amazing. The Nigerian Christians praying through the night in Excel Centre. Amazing. Like, I, think, I think it's the biggest all-night prayer meeting by far in the country, possibly in Europe. And of course, that is now the site of the first NHS Nightingale Hospital, a place that has had so much prayer, is now this place. And, you know, stories like that, I just think, link in incredibly with what you were just saying about, you know, the faithfulness of Christians for decades praying for you. And of course, that incredible answer to prayer. And, and the answer to prayer, of course, coming through medical provision. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, this conjunction of, of prayer, faith and medicine. When we were in Zimbabwe, I was, I was a missionary with the International uh, Missions of Elim, you know, the Pentecostal Church. Um, and we prayed for people to be healed, of course, as part of our ministry. But we also ran a 75 bed hospital in a rural area. And we had a surgeon and a team of nurses and others working there. And I think there should be this, this coming together, um, you know, of those who, who seek to serve and bring God's healing heart to people in whatever form we can. 
So tell me a bit about what the future holds. I always ask this question towards the end of interviews, but of course, it's the first time I've asked it during lockdown. And I think the, the current situation we're in means I think all of us, myself included, are actually finding it quite hard to picture the future. But nevertheless, I mean, especially given this, this miracle operation you've had and the new lease of life it's given you, what are your hopes for the coming years? Well, it is a new season for me. Um, uh, odd that we're stuck. I, you know, I, I've had to cancel several trips that were planned. I was going to be speaking in churches. I would have been back in Cardiff for Easter and wasn't able to go, although I did make a, a video message. I'm supposed to be up in Yorkshire this coming weekend and I'm making another video sermon for them. Um, but I, with, with the book, I particularly feel that the timing of this was of God because uh, one or two readers have kindly been in touch with me and said that they regard it as essential reading in this lockdown because I'm dealing with the issue of when life hurts and when it's hard and, and how we can keep you know, our faith in, in these kind of struggling situations. So I feel the next phase for me really is to just keep developing this ministry to those who are going through chronic storms and trials of all kinds and God will open doors of opportunity some local here in the island and and some away from here and I'm writing still I as I say I'm writing the these studies about the book of Job and and I'll keep writing because I do feel I blog and you know I write and so on uh, on the internet and I do feel that Although, you know, I perhaps can't get off the island at this time and I'm locked down, I can still be productive in that way. Mm. And that uh, somehow God will lead us on from here. There is a new season now, and I do feel that God's got something new for us. I'm Sam Howes, and you have been listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I do hope that interview, that conversation has blessed you. If you do want to find out more from Eric, then do check out the book. It's published by Instant Apostle, and it's well worth getting a hold of to get the full details and everything that Eric's been through, and also how his faith has grown and changed during these times of real difficulty for him and his family. It's called Through the Storms by Eric Gaudian, out now with Instant Apostle. That's all we've got time for this week. We will see you same time, same place next time. Have a great rest of your weekend.